0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I'm happy to announce that the International Cultic Studies Association is conducting its annual international conference jointly with InfoSec InfoCult of Montreal. The conference theme this year is Exploring the Needs of People Who Leave Controlling Groups, Relationships, and Environments. This virtual conference is 100% online and takes place from June 24th to June 26th and includes 70 speakers, 60-plus presentations on different topics, and five workshops. In this virtual conference, you can interact with speakers and attendees alike in chat spaces that encourage networking and collaboration. Some of this year's speakers are Jarette Bouillon, Jennifer French, Chris Shelton, Deanna Levy, Joe Kelly... Maria Peragalese, Ron Burks, Joseph Zimhart and many many more. You can find out more about this year's conference and register to attend at icsahome.com. The presentations are available on the Huva platform for 30 days after the conference ends, and you may also continue to interact with speakers and attendees on the app. The registration fee is 125 US dollars. The student registration fee is 50 U.S. dollars, and scholarships are available. We look forward to seeing you. I hope you can attend the International Cultic Studies Association conference that they're doing jointly with InfoSec and InfoCult. I will be presenting two different talks, and participating in two different workshops. The two different talks that I will be giving will be about conspiracy theories and also about going for counseling after you feel that you have been manipulated by or taken advantage of by a coach or mental health professional. And the workshops will be about doing interventions and working with families. There are so many great topics. Please check out the conference, and please attend if you can. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for today, I want to just remind you to go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a much-needed supporter of the show. And if you're interested in the support group that I run every other Wednesday night— which is called the SAM group, Support After Manipulation. For people who are involved in cults or in manipulative relationships, please go to my website at rachelbernsteintherapy.com and find out more information there and be in touch with me through there. And then I'm happy to discuss any other questions you have about it. For today... I'm going to invite you not only to listen to today's episode, but the continuation of my conversation next week, where you're going to hear a lot of details about what occurred and the after effects. Today, Zach Bonney and I talk about how he became an author after having been through what he'd been through. Zach and I met years ago at a conference, and it was really nice to talk to him again. He's the author of dead, insane, or in jail. And Zach takes readers into the inner workings of the facility where he lived and the impact the school had on his hyper-stimulated young mind. Incarcerated at age 14 at a school for troubled teens in northern Idaho, Zach has crafted a fast-moving plot-driven memoir with vivid characters and telling details where even simple English words took on somehow sinister meanings. In the bylines for the show, we're going to list places where you can be in touch with Zach and also find his work. Please stay tuned also for next week's episode, where Zach talks on a very personal level about what he experienced and how it has impacted him afterwards. Here's part one of my two part conversation with Zach Bonney. I am so happy to have Zach, Bonnie, with me today. You and I met years ago at a conference, and I was really struck by your story. And I was also really struck by something that hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about, which is that stories are connected with trends in the media. And sometimes a story comes out and it's before the trend. And you have to have people care about something that they haven't heard about and they might not know about or they might not believe to the degree that you experienced it. And so I think it's probably hard to get traction. It's like doing this work when I started doing it in the late 80s, early 90s, where cults were big, you know, like they they were popular and then they they weren't in the news as much. And I remember for a good decade or so, people saying, why are you doing this? Because, I mean, cults don't exist anymore. Because there was a sense that we weren't hearing about it. It didn't exist. So I really value how much you've stayed with this subject through it being a trend and through people hearing about it and even before people had heard about it because it takes a lot to stay with the story and say, I need you to care about something that you might not have heard about before and that you might not even quite believe yet. So it takes a lot of strength. So I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself and then we'll start talking.
1: My name is Zach Bonney and I wrote a couple of books. They're in a series called Dead Insane or In Jail about my time in a couple of programs We call troubled teen programs, CDU in particular. And I was at its second school called Rocky Mountain Academy, which was in the northern panhandle of Idaho. And I was there for 30 months. And my books are about that experience. The first book is really just about my first six weeks in the program, and then a month that I kind of ran away from the program, which is very typical. And second book is about the whole following year and a half. So people who are really interested in large group awareness trainings, rap sessions, they'll get a lot from these two books. That'll be um, hopefully a a new tonic for people.
0: Okay, great. So we'll make sure to come back to that because I want you to be able to talk about the process of writing a book. And it's a rewarding process. It's a painful process. It's a a lot. And uh, in order for people to write about their experience, they need to get back into their experience. And I don't know if, you know, everyone has sensitivity about that. So when they're reading difficult words on a page, it means people were having the difficult emotions, just getting them down. And so I'm really glad that you decided to put pen to paper or finger to keyboard or whatever it was, because it is something invaluable, not only as part of your healing, but really for education and most of all prevention. So people understand how to watch out for these things as well.
1: Yeah, that's, it's been, and it's a painful realization that a book is a tool and not everybody is willing to put in the time and experience to, to learn how to, Access it and use it. I mean, I did have open eyes coming into the process, but um, it's really just a whole different world of trying to market it, insert yourself into conversations and current events. And it comes from such a very different place of uh, like sincere introspection and backward looking to do the work. Um, and they just come from extremely different places. And the idea today. You know, you have to know how to develop websites and be social media savvy and even internet savvy, and you know that's par for the course. And, and, and to me, it's it's been difficult and I'm not really all that rewarding. <laughs> if that's okay. If that's okay to say.
0: Yes, it's okay because it's honest. We're all about honesty. Maybe let's stay on this for a moment before we go back into hearing more about your story. When did you write your first book?
1: Okay, uh, so the first book came out in 2015 and I had been working on it really as kind of a hobby piece for um, like maybe 10 years. And then let's see, at some point in 2010, I was struck by a vehicle while walking and um, suffered a mild traumatic brain injury and a bunch of injuries, subsequently hiding from insurance, insurance adjusters and, um, you know, healing up. I began working on the book more intensively and more with kind of thinking, you know what, I've put so much time into this, maybe I should try to bring it to that next level. Knowing full well that it was going to be a challenge for numerous personal reasons and also that it's easier said than done. But uh, I knew I had something that was the beginning. In, in other conversations I've had, I always give a lot of credit to my editor who did not go to one of these programs but really asked me the difficult questions and improved the writing enormously by magnitudes. And that was really helpful to actually have a partner, somebody who cared, because, you're, you know, the, the, the content of the Dead and Insane or in Jail series is quite complex and traumatizing and there's a lot to unravel.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And I have your first book on my shelf in my office. And every once in a while, what I do is I, I will take a book out and turn it sideways. So people don't just see the side, you know, but will see the whole cover. And I kind of rotate books in that way in the office just to help people like little advertisements for the books that I have that I think would be helpful to the people coming in. And so it gets a lot of interest, I think, because of the title of it, because it's a subject that people are also starting to hear about. But the powerlessness that it covers, the feeling of just abject powerlessness is something so many people can relate to on so many different levels of the clientele that I work with, of the people I'm sure you've talked to over the years. And so even if people haven't been in some of these residential placements, they were raised on a compound or they were in a relationship like that or whatever else. So it's it's a relatable, primal feeling that you are discussing in the book. So I just wanted to give you that feedback and it's, and it is beautifully written. I think it's also good. You're right to have a good editor who can ask you the questions, even if uh, people are interviewing me and they say, well, tell me why you care about this. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's actually, you know, I've been asked really good questions and I thank people. That's really nice. I like being able to think that through. So I have an answer because there is a reason. I just don't think about it all that often. So you wrote the first book. What was the feedback that you got from the first book?
1: Oh boy, I got a lot of feedback. Um, you know, it's kind of what every new writer wants is to have people actually read their work. So that was like a really big thing. And I think there was a lot of people who aren't readers that, because of the subject matter, they're like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suck this up like a, you know, like a sponge." And so uh, that was very flattering. And um, one of the things I think I'm probably most proud of is that the people who do get their hooks into it wind up reading it. This isn't probably exactly what you asked me, but I didn't really put it together that people would continue to find the book year after year. So it's always like I have new people reaching out to me and new people finding me. And uh, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. I thought, you know, there would be like a rush, like, oh, people who went to RMA with me or, you know, some of the CDU schools who knew about my writing would dig it and tell a couple of people. And then it would be a flash in the pan and go, kind of disappear. And it, you know, kind of a little bit the opposite happened. It goes through these waves where people find it and they talk about it. And I, you know, a couple of stragglers will write to me. And and then during the second book, I was trying to write the second book that came out in 20, it was published in 2018. So I did it really quickly. And, um, that was difficult to manage because meanwhile, some of the more practical things we were talking about, like websites and responding to people who are, you know, fans and, um, trying to make social media posts. And meanwhile, I'm trying to write the second book, which is like, like waking up with a nosebleed every day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh-huh. just like, uh, um, something that I had done in 10 or 12 years now I was doing in one. And that was putting on grown-up pants for me. And then that was like going back to college, you know, it was like everything all at once. And unfortunately I wasn't able to give the attention to people at the same time. And it was really hard for me because I knew that I'd struck a chord. I knew that there were people that were in numerous other programs that were getting something from this, you know, and then there were a lot of people who reached out to me that were in programs that were definitely worse than mine. And that was kind of like brought up this whole like imposter syndrome and you know meanwhile there's the Stockholm syndrome like I'm saying bad things about my cults and you know I've you know and there was a lot of logistical questions also like you know should I change the names you know there was some things I was resistant to I was like you know what these were adults who got a paycheck I don't want to change their names but it was wise advice from smarter people than I that <laughs> whose opinions prevailed you know so mostly very good decisions were made So let's talk for a minute about the the kind of content of the book for some people who don't know.
0: Yes, please, please. And then just so people know who are listening, who are not familiar with your story, we will most certainly get to that. I want you to be able to talk about your books, to have people know them as a resource, and then we'll go back into, uh, into your history and into your experiences, the things that prompted the books. So go ahead.
1: In the books, you know, at the headings of some of the chapters and interspersed throughout are what me and the editor were calling interstitial bits, sort of a legal term maybe. But I had uh, archived my letters that I wrote to my mom and dad and others, all my journal entries, and uh, went through and found the ones that were going to kind of fit in the chapters. And also... I had this idea that the first book was going to be kind of like a precocious 14-year-old book report on this crazy experience that he went through. So therefore, like a book report, you know, I tried to read other people's works and put some quotes that they had said about pertinent information to the book in there. And what it really did was help draw an outside picture so that you got the view from a psychiatrist or legal Person's point of view, and not just a fourteen-year-old boy's point of view, and that kind of matures as I grow in the program. And in the second book, I continue that, and we begin right right when I come back from running away, and uh, I continue that, and it kind of grows a little bit. You see, you'll you'll definitely see maturity in me as I go through the progression of the program, too, and I integrate the knowledge that they wanted us to have. Some of it's kooky and quackery. But some of it is kind of like um, feathered with some really great truths. And like we know that that's how these messages are received. And it makes it all the more difficult to ex- extricate yourself years later.
0: It's. I'll just jump in for a moment. Yes, there are a lot of people who will say, do I need to get rid of all of it? Because some of it might actually have been OK or helpful or wise. Usually the things that are wise and helpful came from another source and that they were integrated and pulled in from other people who were credentialed and new things. I've heard from a lot of people who said, I wish it actually had been all that. So it would be much easier for me to just put it all away instead of having to parse out what's positive and negative because it... That sometimes makes it a little more confusing. And then I will also tell people, I'm glad actually there were some good pieces because you should have something to show for your time and your effort and your (laughs) sacrifice and your abuse that there were some little kernels. It goes all over the place. There are a lot of reactions.
1: There are so much to be said for the milieu that we're speaking of that has to do with like a therapy and that it's all about you and how you feel and what you think. And what happens is I didn't mean to say that there's like all these positive things. and In fact, it's crazy how much negative self-messaging we received and that we compound that later after the program, too. And so there's a really big world of self-esteem issues and untreated mental health problems and, um, of course, attachment disorders that were never dealt with at all, but only made you know, much worse. So there's so many places we can go. And I guess, you know, for the reader or listener that isn't familiar with exactly what we're talking about, it might be helpful to go into that a little bit. And you know so much about this. How would you describe that troubled teen industry world and the milieu, you know, of time that it's taken and how much money they've made?
0: Right. I mean, it, it is, um, it's, to me, um, a money making scheme that is cruel in that at its center, it uh, takes advantage of people's trust and betrays it. And that it takes advantage not only of the children, but of the parents who are well meaning to a great degree, not always, but to a great degree. And everyone's being lied to under this subterfuge, of, like it's being cloaked as something that is helpful and not only helpful, but vital and necessary and the only way. So people pin so many hopes and dreams and kind of this wish of relief for their child, for their family on these places that to a great degree have zero intention of making anyone's life better, but that they're just using it as a way to kind of line their wallets And also feel grandiose and powerful. And for some people, just to see what they can get away with, because they have a sadistic part of their personality and they enjoy the power way too much. And so if this were a business and they called it a business, it would be different. But because they're saying, hand us your children and we will care for them, then it becomes, I think, this place at its core of being really selfish and destructive and evil and also that there is no oversight to a great degree which we can talk about and I think also which I hope we'll get back to the negative self-messaging which is rampant not only in these organizations but kind of cultic groups in general and also abusive relationships that so many people get away with running places like this because they teach people to redirect their focus inward and so then they kind of skate by getting away with far too much and writing a book like this is a way I hear that people say, not so fast. You can't keep kind of just skating by. I'm actually going to shine a light on you not because the light has been shined on me for so many years, unfairly, and I'm going to redirect it onto you.
1: Yes. I think in the way that people who have gone through these experiences. And and I think there is a real distinction between having been raised in something and maybe joining something later in life and the the place where you're sent. I think there are really big distinctions that happen here. One is that there's a sense of stasis, you know, like it might not have been perfect. There might've been a lot of screaming. There might've been a lot of conflict, but it was home. And to have yourself plucked, well, not have yourself, but, you know, to be plucked, to be taken to be escorted, to be kidnapped, um, you know, whatever your preferred nomenclature for that process is, and put into such a foreign situation that is, and and this is one of the things that I, I, you know, was hearing when, you know, people say they join a cult, it's because they're at this vulnerable stage in their life, and that's why they can start to believe these things. When we're kids and we're put into that situation, we are like, Vulnerable times 10, and all of the things that we had, even the love of our parents, was gone. And we had hurt them and we had betrayed them and we were to blame. And that's a lot to take on. And yet it's the first step. It happens like, you know, right away. And then there's all of these things that come afterwards that have to do with the systemic. And the personal. And I'm really interested in that. And I think the book does demonstrate that. And because there's these things that happen on the, the system level where you see all of it and you're like, oh, well, here's how you behave and here's how you get treated better. And then the interpersonal level of how we chemically and psychologically and emotionally were reacting. And you know, it was a very predictable manner in which we would react. And that the school could point to that and be like, see, this is. This is how it works. So there's a lot of things going on here. And then there's a lot of really great conversation to be had. One of the things that people never really considered, except for you know Marcus Chatfield, I always mention his work because it so came out kind of at the same time as mine. I didn't realize what I was doing when I was writing my book, but now I have the words to say, yeah, there's a simultaneous application of mounting pressures that occur And uh, that's one of the things that's like a really big deal that people have a hard time describing. And I was like, well, if I can write about it without knowing that that's what I was doing, I was like, here's what's accurate. Here's how they mounted. And I didn't, I wasn't thinking there's a simultaneous application of increasing (laughs) the patient, you know, uh, know, I wasn't thinking of it like that. And so, you know, there's these little word tricks you use. And um, there's another one that I, I missed my cue on. Um, something a couple of weeks back, which some of your listeners might have, you know, when people say, "Well, give us some idea of what the result of going through these kind of therapies is," and uh, you know, I went into this long thing when all I had to say was "extended adolescence." <laughs> you know, there's we're, there's just little things that you learn along the way. So I'm not sure good how how good of an interview subject I am, but you know, because I'll I'll realize like a year later, like, oh, all I had to say was.
0: right i love the wordsmiths out there so keep them coming because it really does help and it shortens things and if someone can go through a couple paragraphs of describing something where they didn't quite get a sense of uh, understanding what was going on and they were in kind of conflict and someone says oh cognitive dissonance oh yeah right okay got it that's the thing it does really help yes
1: And as a writer who's 14 years old for the purposes of the book, there were some things that were like that. And I guess, you know, there's a lot of lanes I could be in, like I could be in the writer lane or I could be in the advocacy lane or like the legalized version of looking at this. But I do now realize that the first book could have been a little bit shorter because there is so much internal dialogue that I was trying to process. And the kind of things that make it like a really good read, if people aren't willing to do that reading and put themselves into young Zach's shoes, then they might not get the entire experience. And so I've been kind of learning how I could do that better now. So, you know, it's a process uh, being an artist and in, in interpreting.
0: Exactly. So maybe just to say to the people listening, you know, when people write their first book, and sometimes it's her only book, but it was your first book. What you're seeing is where they are then. And it reflects you trying to make sense of something that didn't make sense and talking it through. And that is a really important process. And I think for people to read the book as such, that this is you trying to put something into words that you might not have words for, or maybe there hadn't been words for at the time. And so they're, they're following your mental path, trying to shine a light on something where it's still kind of murky, but it's a wonderful effort. And I guess for people to know that it's not necessarily going to look polished because that's not where you were at the time, you know, it was still all over the place in your mind. And yeah, anyone's writing is going to reflect where they are in that moment.
1: And that's true. And from an advocacy standpoint, also, I can't forget that I went into this process assuming I was going to be resented and hated. I went into it. It was a complete island. There wasn't really anything out there except for the positive points of view. So that's one of the reasons also that there's a lot of like that mental jiu-jitsu going on between both what I thought then and what I think now in the writing. And in and in it, you're like, well, wait a minute. I understand that maybe some of this is good and that like, mom and dad are mad at me, but like, this is way too extreme. This is going to affect me for the rest of my life. There was a lot that I was trying to take on and I was kind of coming from the point of view that people aren't going to want to hear it. So it's was. it it's been really um, a big strength of the work itself that so many people have been able to relate to it.
0: So many of these stories are David and Goliath stories. And so when you have this idea that you are this David and that you were going to have people potentially fighting your message or taking issue or suing you or whatever else. Yes, of course, you're going to be in that mode. I also wonder, just with our conversation now about you being potentially critical or second-guessing yourself that if that's kind of a carryover from the negative self-messaging, looking at what you didn't do well enough or you could have done better. It's an interesting conversation that we're having about this, just the tone of it, it's sort of making me wonder about how much you were given this impression of yourself that what you did wasn't good enough.
1: Boy, um, here's another thing that I was thinking before I I spoke with you. It's like, it's really hard to kind of like represent other people. But even if I don't want to, I do. So I can't help it that the books do. And that has been kind of a weird wire to walk. And, And then on the other side is, well, you know, just the personal doing it so being put into that situation where we're at our most vulnerable and when i say that situation i need to clarify that for your people because they might you know might not really know where you have constant threat of a, a personal assault on you and it might not be a physical assault but there it's always coming that you fucked up you ruined your parents life they hate you you can't be there you lost the privilege and you know there's no link easing in period very much that's like the first thing and also your appearance has changed your strip searched and these are all like really hook in mouth thought stopping and brainwashing techniques and i'm not a specialist so i don't have to use the term persuasive i'm talking it's like i'm gonna call it brainwashing because i was using that word as a 14 year old when i was there and then you know later kind of having to teach myself that that wasn't true. And then later on, of course, realizing that it was exactly true in educating myself. And and that's another thing that I noticed with so many of your guests, they're really well-read people. And I I had something that made me smile really big was when you had that acting couple that, uh, you know, not that they're a couple, but they set up a uh, non-abusive theater And that he said that, you know, knowing Shakespeare and being able to read and speak and act in Shakespeare is a marketable skill. I'm telling you, (laughs) like, wow, that was like, somebody gets me. Like, that was was huge. Um, So it's true. And I don't have too many of them, but that's one of them. And and just how many overlaps there are with theater and in, in my life, too. I also ran towards the most narcissistic, dangerous individual I could that I perceived that there was going to be a crazy power dynamic. And uh, that was also related to theater and academia. And um, it's, you know, something that definitely wouldn't have happened to me if I hadn't gone to RMA. I never would have wound up in this relationship with this person if I hadn't gone there. So I was, you know, really realizing that there were pieces of me that for a long time, not just like a year afterwards, you know, five and 10 years afterwards, there were still reacting in some predictable manner and in ways that were contrary to my innate human sense.
0: Very interesting. Okay. So then when we go through things chronologically, then we'll get to that as a as an outgrowth of your experience and right what you're going to be gravitating towards based on, I think, physiologically, what you're used to, a certain amount of intensity, but also probably what you feel you deserve to a certain degree. So anything else about your books before we go into your history?
1: I didn't realize that that's what I was doing, but I was showing this simultaneous application of mounting pressures. The the definition of what you call abuse, you know, and quantifying it, there's been a whole kind of learning curve as I've kind of been speaking and presenting a little bit about this. Also, just the illustrations themselves were made by somebody who I was at Rocky Mountain Academy with she was Jonathan transitioned so when I knew him he was the girl there, and uh you know even though she was a year older than I was in the program this was somebody who was being bullied really badly and also they had really great artistic capabilities so that skill was kind of roped in by the staff so they would be the person who made the drawings or the the poster board and um as a result you know when i asked jonathan if he was interested in doing the artwork he was like you know i definitely am because i kind of felt like my artistic skill was exploited by them and same with me like i was kind of like known that i was reading and writing a lot and that my mom was a writer and that i was verbal and so I was really good at giving tours. And so I gave a lot of tours to parents that sent their kids there. Some of the kids are still really pro-program and don't talk to me. That goes to show you how extreme it can be. And that, that was a no-brainer that they would use me for that because I was so honest with the parents. And I was like, oh, I hated it here. But if I hadn't been sent here, I'd kill myself. And you know, just all of these things. you know. And I wanted to also, I guess, show the process by which these things can happen and I wanted to be extremely detailed about it, and I think that was one of the things that also got across. As I was very detailed, so people could see this process. The final thing I'll say is, if a person sat down and read the book, the first book, cover to cover, and without sleeping or you know eating, it would still be less time than one of those profits.
0: Wow, that puts it in perspective. My goodness, wow. Well, uh, you know, I think giving this other person, Jonathan, an opportunity to express himself for a very different reason and purpose and to give him a chance to do some healing as part of your project is a really wonderful thing. That's a that's a mitzvah. I think about that as a as a mom myself, as a mom of trans kids also that I can't imagine them in certain living at a different time, a different area or environments where there's going to be not only intolerance, but abusiveness. I don't know how you come back from that. So I'm very happy that you're able to help someone else also come back from that. So I was going to say moving on, but actually moving back. What I am curious about is sort of laying the foundation, your life before do and also what SIDU is. A lot of people have heard of it. A lot of people have not. And so as part of you telling your story, I'd love you to kind of describe what this is because I know SIDU is this, uh, it, it's at the heart of so many of these other programs. It's like the, the body that has lots of tentacles. It's such a shame. So tell me about your life. What was happening before you got involved in these programs or were sent to these programs?
1: Okay. Well, both of my parents are still alive, so that helps me kind of gauge what I'm. You know, there's it was there was a lot of conflict, and um, I had an extremely overachieving brother and um, a newborn sister, and I had kind of gotten to that point at you know thirteen or fourteen where I wasn't doing well in school. You know, actually had a medical diagnosis of depression. Man, it is is weird to talk about all of that. Such a long time ago, and yet it's still part of me. My parents were kind of puckered. (laughs) You know, I think they uh, didn't have as high a tolerance for regular kind of teenage stuff. I'm not saying they were totally strict. They were just puckered. And so... Uh, After having such a high achieving brother and, you know, needing this extra attention and then there was a lot of screaming and then, you know, the whole dynamic was I'm the one who causes this reaction in everybody. And it's important that I paint that picture because of what I've learned since. And it wasn't fair and it isn't fair, but almost all of the kids who get sent to these programs, oftentimes there's a dynamic in the family that isn't addressed. And uh, it's just easier to to do that. And um, I uh, am as diplomatic as I can be to show that there was multiple mistakes made everywhere. And at the time, and actually, it's really important that we talk about this because it's going on right now. And it's going on right now with one of my own family members, same age I was. And yet there aren't a lot of options out there for somebody who needs a little extra attention. But it isn't like intense uh, as it was when I was there. And, and so much of the programs have changed, but there are elements that are the same. And um, so I think through an educational consultant back East, this was in 1988, there was only a handful of schools. Most of them had sprung from SEDU. And there was Cascade in Whitmore, California. I think it, was, it is. And there was... CEDU in California and Rocky Mountain Academy in Idaho. Not too many other programs that had the allure that CEDU campuses could give. So they were outside, they weren't warehouse situations like straight or the kids programs. They were mega expensive, which we know makes it so the parents are like, well, if it costs this much, then, you know, if it costs this much more than the other one, then it must be that much better than the other one. But there's a lot of, uh, weird stuff going on with that. There's pressures to get the kid there because he's like on the hospital bed, you know, he's going to die if you don't do something. And these indicators are only ones that he's going to do worse. I actually gave a presentation in Philadelphia about informed consent and it kind of goes into this in a more analytical manner that I'm doing right this minute. So I, I've Spent a lot of time and energy focusing on why I got sent to this fucking place, actually, um, and how that happened. And, um, and why, even though, you know, I hated it, I thought about going back and working. there. So, you know, there's a whole lot to be talked about. I was engaging in age-appropriate stuff, though. This is where, you know, when I first talked about this link, for example, with my um, psychiatrist counselor 12 or 14 years ago. It was like I needed to defend and, and my parents' decision. And so I had to lay out all of these things that I came to believe in the program that now I don't. It causes a lot of conflict in the brain to talk about conflicting points of view that happened at different times. And I guess that's a really long way of saying, like, I always painted myself in the worst light possible to defend why I began, why I believed in the program. So like the more mental faculties I had to resist the program, they became ways to um, stand up for the program and then to undo that later. So it it is complicated. So, you know, was I going to kill myself if I hadn't got sent there? I don't believe that now, but I did for a long time. And I said it, which made me believe it all the more there's a lot of uh, personality quirks that i thought were just kind of like oh well that's just kind of how i am but when i started to unpack how these traumas related and started to self identify when these quirks as they were came up i realized that i was having a trauma response and it began this process of writing about it so very early on i knew something was weird so i was living in new york and on September tenth, two thousand one, I witnessed a violent act, and then the next morning, the World Trade Centers were attacked, and I could see that out of my window. And um, sometime in the next year, I began to go to a shrink, and he diagnosed me with PTSD. But he actually diagnosed me with PTSD because of what I was telling him about Idaho. And I was like, "Oh no, Idaho saved my life!" <laughs> you know, "Oh no, uh, I needed that." And he was like, well, tell me more about that and tell me more about that. And this isn't somebody who I saw intensively for a long time. I saw him once a month for a year or two, but it really opened up a lot of things in me. And so I began to dabble and write about it. And then when I got smacked in the head by a car, something kind of awoke in me and I, all of the unfairness, all of the anger, all of the trapped feelings, all of it really kind of came back. And I'll I'll fast forward through all of the books till now, even just yesterday, I, I speak with people who need therapy, but won't go because it's too weird to talk about how they feel again, just in itself and have incredible anger issues that they know are related to their RMA years and have almost nobody in the world to talk to about it. So they call me. And it's one of these things where there's really um, a vacancy when it comes to helping people who've been institutionally abused. There's so many ways that we sexually reacted to how we reacted in educational structures, or just like having a boss again. Everything to, to being in charge of ourselves and our money, and daily living skills. You know, people took along time to learn that and depending on how much support they had at home and everything it's just like it's like the end of a trumpet after the program you know everybody's kind of gone through this theme system it's the way it is and then everybody just kind of goes out and how they react to it years later is no wonder that you get a lot of complicated point of views and contradictions
0: Right. I, I'm actually remembering a Cult Awareness Network conference. This is the Cult Awareness Network before it was taken over by Scientology. So for everyone to know, if they're contacting the Cult Awareness Network, the phone is going to be answered by a Scientologist. So FYI. Anyway, there was a panel, I remember, when you're at a conference that was all about dealing with bosses, that it was from one extreme to the other, either I never say no so I stay till 12 o'clock at night because I was asked to take care of things and I don't I didn't know that you could say no all the way to you can't tell me what to do and how dare you and screw you and getting fired. And so it was sort of how to be in the world with making decisions where you're not forfeiting your power, but you're making decisions that make sense for the situation that you're in and that you still have a say and just having to figure all of that out, that, that place in the middle. So it's interesting. You should bring that up. So Right. These are things that people I think don't have an awareness about, about the challenges, the day-to-day challenges that people deal with after these experiences.
1: Yeah. And I think that's one of the untold places where there's there's very few people. I know Beth Mentenier and Jody are some with her work with um Sia survivors of institutionalized abuse. I, I am really more interested in why this happens. It's it's not just the reaction, it's also why. Because there were these pre-existing conditions that led to somebody being put into that program, they had to take the onus on for all of that. So the blame for being abused sexually is there. The blame for a divorce is there. Everything that led to that decision is something that the child takes on, lives with that for the rest of the program. You know, there's the result of living in this kind of institutionalization after kind of neglect And after rather profound verbal abuse and how we responded, how our brains responded to this is, you know, it's really fascinating because when you talk about it as a therapist, there must be something to being vulnerable. There must be a good thing somehow to be vulnerable, but how does that get turned by a cult into shame? And it's like, it is all the time, like vulnerability becomes shame. And in our place, we carry this tremendous amount of shame around with us all the time because we were like, and we wanted to leave, and we we weren't supposed to want to leave, and we hated the counselors, but we kind of love them because there's all this Stockholm syndrome going on, and they're telling us it's all normal, and you know, and that we're supposed to emote about it. And this is one of the things that Marcus also talks about in his work that goes without like comprehension, I think, by people in the therapy field. We dwelled and ruminated and had circular thoughts to the point where if you didn't have OCD, you're gonna. And that that was therapy. So, you know, it's no wonder when you leave, you have all of this messaging. And and meanwhile, of course, at the very end, they're like, oh, but the whole point of the program is to combat the messaging. And here's here's a a little tool, like, you know, but they're not making up for the like two and a half years of brain chemistry that's been altered or, um, you know, just basically... As Lorna and Bill Goldberg put it, uh, usurp the role of the parent and become the new parent. So ruminating and circular thoughts, self-hatred and criticism, a distrust of all, total distrust of anybody. Why would somebody be attracted to me or want to work with me or, you know, everything. There's a defensiveness also, like after you've been like picked at and criticized and then you become an older student, you know, you don't have to put up with that anymore. And in, the grou- in these group sessions called Raps, it's really wild that we live in this time period where um, like interrupting somebody could be seen as a power dynamic because like we would go over each other auditorily and um, whoever kept yelling and got it out was the person who, you know, won, you know, boys and girls did this all the time. It was like, that's how you did it. So, you know, years later that you realize, I mean, it's just crazy. How, how do you survive? in a workplace environment after that, when you've been encouraged to cut off everybody and become this like crazy alpha voice.
0: Right. And I think also with that, people learn to tolerate more than they should. So not only do you attack other people thinking it's for their benefit, but you will get attacked and not know you're being abused.
1: You get both. I mean, you have people who get out of there that... They're never going to be confronted that way again. They're so afraid of confrontation that even in a relationship where confrontation is kind of a healthy part of it, they don't know where the fucking line is. And I understand. I get it because you don't know. Uh, also, there's auditory defensiveness. These are words that I didn't have. I didn't know what that was. It's not just being in the grocery store and hearing a prophet song and having to get the hell out of there, although we all have that. It's like loud noises or even hearing like a child screaming, like really... Those kind of emotions, they turned me off from wanting to be a parent. I just didn't want to be around that kind of intense emotion again for a long time, unless it was practice, uh, unless it was like in theater. Like that was different. It was a protected thing. That's a real thing. Auditory defensiveness, paranoia, you know, they're out to get me. These people are saying bad things about me. There's like the whole integrating back into like a peer system was very difficult for me. And also like, it was really cool to hear you speaking with Joe Simpart about how artists are more susceptible, perhaps, to magical thinking. But I also kind of, you know, the conspiracy part of it. And, you know, there's a lot of us that went through these programs that the programs themselves are experimental programs because they're engaging in human experimentation. They're not proven. And so there's a lot of us that kind of want to know what level of that is actually happening. Like, was there some involvement from the authorities to watch this? and then? let's see, there's words The the emotions now have new pathways after screaming at the floor or pounding pillows or um, taking on this feeling of guilt and shame and verbally expressing it. When you get out of that situation, there's no place for that anymore. So there's these new pathways that have been made for your emotions and you don't, Know what to do with them, uh, entering into more controlling relationships or becoming the controlling party. Um, extended adolescence, risk taking, etc. You know, we all had a lot of pretty serious abandonment issues and the whole Stockholm syndrome side of it, where our sympathies really kind of lied with the staff more than the students, and that that happened really quickly and um, kind of undoing some of that. So those were just ones that I came up with, and those are macro. That's not even just me. When I think about me. I couldn't take a joke when I got out of there. I had been, like, toyed with and messed with. I couldn't tell when people were just, like, taking the piss, you know? Like, so that was hard for me to get used to. Um, The point is that there's a whole untold, well, a whole unwritten book I probably need to get working on. (laughs) And uh, there's a whole lot of people that would have something to say about that. And a lot of it is really contradictory because it's contradictory to what they thought at 15 or 16. And that they've gone through periods where they've reacted either, you know, more healthfully or less healthfully to it.
0: Yes. A lot of people will leave these situations talking about feeling kind of humorless and also not knowing if they're being made fun of and if they're supposed to be getting upset or if they're supposed to be laughing and if it's innocent or if it's not. So much of what happens in programs is that there is some ulterior motive or you're supposed to think that it's somehow for your growth and you don't have a clear sense about why you're being told what you're being told or why you're being yelled at. And I think in that way, people really disengage. They just sort of just start floating because they don't know really what the anchors are anymore, like what's real, what's not. And that can create, I think, more more of that Stockholm syndrome, because then you attach your anchor onto something that seems real and the staff can seem real. But I'm wondering when you're talking about feeling protective towards or even looking up to the staff, what was happening there in these environments that created that? Now, even in retrospect that you're thinking they were not qualified to be doing any of this.
1: I'll refer to um, your September 22nd conversation with Beth Mentenier about that. She, as a colleague and friend of mine, has been really helpful in helping me understand that. There's, of course, Edgar Schein refer- refers to the freezing and unfreezing, but there's the fight, flight, freeze, and then fawn and flatter. And we did the fawning and flattering. And like people who, You know, After watching my friends get yelled at, and after getting yelled at, it's like you would kind of hate this staff member, but at the same time, all of your actions would be about gaining favor. So uh, the people's opinions who I cared about the most were the people who I was the most fearful of, the people that had the most power over me. And that's a very real thing going on. In fact, I kind of kept a relationship going with one staff member until... I asked them directly about money and the realization that they would be paid more to basically be the the agent of more psychological maltreatment. Again, I didn't have the words for it. I just remember when she told me, well, when you started to be in the program and really started to believe it, it was because of your trust in me. And as a result, I began To become more of a staff member. And so I was paid more and you were like my guinea pig. And I was supposed to feel some sort of like, oh, how proud I am. But instead it had this reaction of going, they're all cultists. That whole system was fucked and I need to write a book about it. And and that I'm not, I'm not going to be friends with any staff members. Like that's the other thing is like, I keep seeing these people pop up. And they have no business being on Facebook. They should. Some of them should be in jail. You know, and again, even though all these years later, I'm like, no, it's not that bad. You shouldn't say that. You're stabbing them in the back. And I'm like, no, I'm an adult now. I'm older than those people were then. And when I put myself into a situation where I'm like, well, let's pretend I needed a job and I was in Idaho and I went and worked there. No, I wouldn't have acted like that. I wouldn't have been like that. I wouldn't have made kids cry and fight one another and scream and like, made them feel bad and lied to their parents and believed that I was do I wouldn't have done that so sorry sorry I wouldn't have. so maybe your moral line is fucked and mine's not
0: one more thing before you go thank you to Zach for the beginning of our conversation I am very happy for you to be able to not only hear the beginning this week, but to hear the continuation next week. Next week is when Zach gets much more fully into his experiences and what happened at these treatment centers and also what the after effects are and how to this day it has left him with some difficulties in assessing a situation and knowing if he needs to berate himself, knowing if he needs to be anxious about it, knowing if it means something about him, and if he's trustworthy, etc. So please, please check out next week's episode so you get into kind of the meat of his experience and how it has lingered on afterwards. I want to make sure also to talk today about how Zach was talking about getting sent to these places, but what he was doing was really engaging in what he called age-appropriate stuff. I hear that time and time again, that there are people who will say, I was sent away. I was put in a car. I was kidnapped. I was taken to a place because I was doing something my parents didn't like or I was doing something that seemed out of control. Now, granted, there are some kids who are engaging in behaviors, in activities that really are life-threatening, life-threatening to themselves and life-threatening to the people around them. And in that situation, it is very important for them to get the care that they need And sometimes that does mean some residential care for a period of time for themselves and the people around them, if they are potentially a danger to others. Now, some of these places, though, as we're hearing about, are safer than others physically and are safer than others emotionally. Please do your research. Please make sure that just because someone has very glossy presentation or there are pictures of them shaking hands with dignitaries or presidents or anyone else. It's meaningless. Talk to the people who have been there. Notice also, if a place only has all five-star reviews, because that means they are telling people they have to give perfect reviews or else, or they're using a company to take out the bad reviews, it's never going to be that everyone has a perfect experience in these places. Most importantly, though, talk to people who have been there. Talk to staff people who used to work there. Find out why they left or find out why they were fired. Sometimes people are fired because they are misbehaving, but sometimes people are fired because they're not willing to do the things that the people in charge are telling them to do because it goes against what they know to be true and good and safe and right. So... I hate to think about all the people who have been sent to places where they really didn't deserve to be treated like felons, like prisoners, where they didn't deserve to be abused because nobody does. And this is also not to say that all of these places are bad. They are not. Again, be a smart consumer. Even if you're feeling panicked, even if you're feeling scared about the direction that your child might be going in. You don't want them to get further traumatized by the decision that you make or by being snowed by the person in charge of this place who has convinced you that it's for their benefit and it's the only choice and the best choice for them. What you find is a lot of what Zach talked about, which is that he said that he defended why he needed the program, saying that it saved my life. I hear that also a lot from people who have been convinced that their life would have gone down an awful trajectory without this. Now, again, sometimes that could have been true, but it's not true as often as it is spoken about by the people in it and by the people who run it. I also hear that about people who have left 12-step programs. And again, some 12-step programs are holding people together and keeping them within this sort of good path. But for others. They have come to be convinced that without it, they would be dead. Without it, they'd be in the gutter. Without it, they will have ruined their lives or ruined someone else's life. And again, the amount of times people are told that, just statistically, it's just not true as often as people are made to be convinced of it. So it's very similar, I find, to when I work with families or couples where someone is being mistreated and the person who's being mistreated says, Well, I deserved to be hit. Or I deserve to be yelled at because that was the only way to keep me in line or that was the only way to get a message through to me because otherwise I wouldn't have listened. Could that be true? Sometimes, but rarely. So when you are leaving a program like this or when you have a loved one who's leaving and they're making blanket statements like that, without this, I would have and something fatalistic and awful would have happened. You want to be able to think about that. And think about if that was a message told to everyone there, because again, just looking at it statistically, it can't be true that often. And wonder about the program and wonder why they wanted you to believe that. If you know for a fact you were headed in that direction, then yeah, it was good for you. Yeah, it prevented something more awful from happening. But if you're thinking, I actually have come to believe this, but my life before actually wasn't so dangerous. And I didn't create so much harm to myself and to others. So it could be that my life actually would not have gone in this very bleak direction that they're telling me it was going to go in. Take some time away and wonder about the messages you've been given as facts, as this sort of premonition, as this foreshadowing of a horrible future, if not for them. Because it could be that it's true, or it could be, that they want to get away with mistreating you and have you not only not feel angry about what happened, but feel deserving about the way you were treated and feel grateful that somehow they kept you safe. So notice the messages you're left with. And again, do your research, please, please, please. I really am looking forward to having you hear the next part of Zach's conversation with me. It's very, very powerful. Until next week, take good care. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you, too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.